are continuing in our series that we launched, kicked off last week, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Today's title is called Bloodlines. Um, If you're needing a Bible, there might be one in a chair next to you, underneath your seat, or at the table in front of you. But if you want to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Over the break... um, uh, I took the boy to see the, the new Star Wars movie. Who all saw the new Star Wars movie? Many of you. Okay, it was horrible. Um, but before we went and we, before we saw the movie, I said to Cannon, I said, listen, man, you have to watch the three good ones um, before we go there to, to see this. And he had seen them before, but I wanted him and my uh, daughter to see them. And so we watched them. And, um, uh, and then we got kind of into this, uh, this thing, and, and we watched Lord of the Rings as well. I mean, people enjoy Lord of the Rings. A lot of, yeah. I can't believe you let your kids watch it. But um, we, we, we watched the edited versions of Lord of the Rings. But, uh, but both those series, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, um, have this theme of family, this theme of bloodlines, right? Like it's of great importance who your father is, like who is in your bloodline. And spoiler alert, we found out that Vader is Luke's father, um, over the break. So if you didn't know that already, but, uh, um, but I, I remember that's, I thought that was going to be funnier than that. Sorry. <laughs> 1984. We found that out. So, um, anyways, I remember this scene from return of the King. Uh, if you've seen, that's the third installment of Lord of the Rings where they're, um, the steward of Gondor. If you remember, um, he had just lost his second son or thought, thought he had lost his second son, his, his last son. And uh, he, he says something to the effect that my, my bloodline is broken. He says, like, the house of Stuart has failed. My, my line has ended, was the exact quote he says. And in that moment, I had, this, I had this panic attack. I was like, I just have one son. And what if something were to happen? I don't want my bloodline to, to end, you know? And so immediately, I shared my concern with Jody, And um, she, she disagreed and sent me back to the basement. But... She said something about your daughters carry the bloodline too or something like that. I don't know. But anyways, these, these, stories, uh, um, these stories are told through bloodlines. Like the next king or the next Jedi was the son or daughter of, of so-and-so, right? And, and that's no different for you and I. You know, my story, your story can be told through our bloodlines. Your past can tell your story and often dictate your future. And so today we're going to look at the story of God through the bloodline. You see, we stated last week that the story of God is being told by Matthew, the tax collector. And we identify him as that because that's how he identifies himself. It's only in Matthew's gospel where when the list is given of the disciples, Matthew intentionally leaves in that he is Matthew, the tax collector. But before you jump deep into a story, you must create context for the reader, right? The story requires context. You need to know the story. Have you ever tried to watch a a sequel of a movie with someone who hasn't seen the first one? Or try to watch uh, an episode of the season two um, with someone who hasn't seen any part of season one, right? It drives you crazy, right? They're asking questions. Who's that? What happened? You know, where, where are all these things? And so over the break, I said to my daughter, I said, listen, if you want to watch... Fellowship of the Ring, you have to watch Two Towers if you want to watch Return of the King, right? I'm like, you need to watch the first one if you want to watch the second one, if you want to watch the last one with us, right? And so, because the movies are setting up context, the same is the story with God. Context is important. 
I also, uh, just this last week, watched several short films um, where they had these uh, different theologians, these different authors, these thinkers respond to the same question, how do we read the Bible today? And this is a huge motivator for our Wednesday night theology that starts next week. How are we supposed to read the Bible? You see, we live 2,000 years after the fact. After some of these stories happen, things have changed today. And so then, how shall we read it? One guy suggests a theory from St. Augustine. He says that the reader, no matter what you're reading, you, you need to take the, the heart of the message. And then you read the entire story through that filter. That everything you read is seen in the light of that most important thing. And so he went on to point out that Jesus was asked one time, what's the most important thing? What's the most important law, the most important commandment? And Jesus said to himself, he said, to the, he said listen, all the law, all the prophets, they hang on this one thing. All the scriptures hang on these, these two things. Love God, all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which means for us today, that if our proof texting, which means is just picking out verses here and here and here to kind of argue your side of an issue. If that doesn't communicate anything less, if it communicates anything less than loving God and loving your neighbor, then you're not reading it right. When we take scripture out of its context, we're left with bad theology. For instance, let me read Psalms 37 verse 4 and verse 5. It says this. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. We all know that. Many of us have, there are similar verses that we have memorized. You know, you know love God and he'll, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, what he is saying in that moment is that when you seek him, when you delight in him, he becomes the desire of your heart. And then you get him. When you seek him, you will get him. His desires become your desires. The things that he loves becomes the things that you love. It's not seek him and desire money and then you'll win the Powerball. That's not what it's about. So when we read, we're to read it with the entire story in mind. And Matthew sets off to write his story with that purpose in mind. Approving that Jesus was in fact the Messiah... The, per, uh, the Messiah that these people have been waiting for. And so he's going to take a huge step in proving that in the first 17 verses. And they will tell the story that Jesus is the king that was promised. Because at that time, in that moment, many people didn't believe that he was. Many weren't buying that this Jesus was the king. And one reason for that is they questioned where he came from. You see, the name Jesus was a very common name. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, meaning Savior. And it was an ordinary Jesus. Uh, Jesus was an ordinary Jewish name, and it was very common in Judea. As common as the name John is to us. Jesus, Joshua, Jehovah Savior. I read somewhere that it said that there were over 70 tombs unearthed found with the name Jesus during the time that Jesus lived. That the name did not have the significance that it has today. But it was this common place where God would ultimately show that there was nothing common about him. 
Let me set up some more context for you. This moment, Rome has been in power for a very long time. It was crazy power, right? They took whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it. And the Jewish people hated it. What was once Hail, the God of Israel, is now Hail, Caesar. And when Jesus showed up, they were expecting something else. Which was another reason why they did not believe that this Jesus was the king. Let me read out of Isaiah chapter 9. This is verse 6. It says this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. Chapter 32. Verse 1 says this. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. I'm going to turn to Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from the old and from ancient time. And so they had this view that this guy was coming to establish the kingdom of Israel again. He was coming to rule on the throne again. Even the disciples believed that he was going to be this kind of a king. Matthew 17, we have the story where Jesus tells them about the future, about how he's going to go to the cross and he's going to have to die. And they, it says the disciples were grieved. They didn't believe it. How, would, how could this king die? He's supposed to rule. There's no way. We see later in John, he tells the story of them. When they come to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier. Why? Because he was defending the king. The king had to live. And so his name meant very little to some because he wasn't acting like the king that they thought he should. And with all of that, Matthew tells the story of God and hope to prove to the readers that this Jesus was the Christ, the anointed salvation of Israel. So if you're in Matthew chapter one, we're gonna start in verse one and I'm gonna read the 17 verses here. Now bear with me. I'm going to butcher some of these names. I asked for volunteers earlier today, and none of them wanted to read it for me. I'm going to do my best. It says this, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus, add the Messiah, the Christ, the, the anointed one. That was the difference. The son of David, the son of Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And the Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. 
and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. After the exile in Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Elikim. And Elikim, the father of Azar. Azar, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. There are about 50 genealogies listed in Scripture. Why? Because they were important. They were used to prove where and and who you came from. And the outcome of those genealogies often dictated uh, several things like the job you would have, the land you would live on, the the property you would own. It often dictated the the hometown you occupied, your reputation, uh, your spouse even. And Matthew gives us what we believe is the genealogy of Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. If you turn to Luke chapter 3, you would find a very similar genealogy. But that is believed to be the genealogy of Mary. And that would uh, be important for a couple reasons, and 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 I'll try to come back to that. But for us today, genealogies, they're they're not very important. Not many of us could even uh, trace our family tree back but a few generations. Now we only use them for medical uh, history or, or just plain curiosity, right? But because then uh, these were uh, extremely important, they were looked at as these legal documents to prove one's identity. And this is what exactly uh, Matthew was telling us. Matthew was writing to prove to the readers that this was the king, that it was prophesied that this king would come from this particular family. It was foretold that this king would come from a certain line. And They didn't want anyone just to show up at that moment and claim to be the Messiah. They had to prove their lineage. And so why does Matthew start with this? Well, he's given context to why Joseph and Mary are even in Bethlehem to begin with, right? In a few chapters, we're going to talk about the birth of Christ. And we know that the the Romans were having the census and they were asking all the uh, people to come in there for tax purposes. And the genealogy is what Joseph would have used as these legal documents to, to, to prove his identity. But there's more to it, I believe. I believe Matthew starts with this, not just to set up the context of why Joseph is in Bethlehem or to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe Matthew wants to preach the gospel, that he wants to give us hope. You see, we mentioned last week that each gospel had a different writer and each one had a different audience that they were were writing to. And that the writers had a different style they were writing with. We talked about Luke being this investigating doctor, right? He wanted to show Jesus' humanity. And if you look at his genealogy, he starts with Jesus and then he goes back. But he traces it all the way back to Adam. Why? Because he set out to prove that this was fully God and fully human, fully man. Matthew starts with Abraham and then ends with Jesus. Why? Because he was emphasizing that Jesus was the son of Adam, who was the son of David. 
son of Abraham. Matthew also uh, broke his genealogy into three equal uh, sections. He said there was 14 in each. He was a very type A person, right? You know, he was organized. He was a tax collector. So he liked numbers. He loved charts, right? And this Jesus uh, is now using Matthew's skill set, right? To do the kingdom work, to tell his story. And we began last week with this idea that 2016 would be the year of the story. That we were going to tell the story of God through the eyes of a tax collector. And Matthew, at no point does he run from his past. Instead, he reminds us throughout the gospel where he came from, that he was Matthew, the tax collector. And he's going to tell the story of God through some bloodlines. And at no point is Matthew interested in protecting the image of the king. Because the genealogy that he gives us is wrought with brokenness. And it's not with who he leaves out, but who he keeps in. Matthew is doing something significant with this genealogy. And he's doing a lot more than just giving us a historical timeline. He's teaching us theology, the story of God. In the very first verse, he says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham, we know was that the son, uh, your son would bless the nations. This was God saying, listen, world, this is your hope. Abraham is your hope. Son of David was told that your son would be the king forever. This was Israel's promise being fulfilled in Jesus. We know Luke adds the son of Adam, proving that this was for all of humanity, that everyone was invited into this. And this record of genealogy is that there is a line of people who start out in these very good years, they go into these these bad years, and then they end up in these redemptive years. Abraham and David, those are uh, two collection of, of promises, two major promises that God said that he was creating in this family tree. The first was Adam. He said, through Adam, his seed will be a blessing to the nations. God's mercy and love will be, will be universally offered. Not simply to one specific line of people, but to Jew and Gentile alike. To David, he promised that there would be a king on the throne forever and that his kingdom would never end. Son of Abraham, son of David. For some reason, if you noticed, Matthew lists four women in this genealogy. He makes it a point to include uh, their names into the list. And the issue is that women weren't often listed in genealogies because it was the father, the father's line that was the most important. The right to the throne and the kingdom would have to come through the father's line. And if by chance there were women listed, it was to enhance the story, right? To enhance the dignity of the story. The problem is Matthew includes four women that, whose life communicates something a little bit different. Because if he was going to pick the true matriarchs of the family, Matthew would have picked people like Sarah, or Rebecca, or Rachel, or Leah, uh, Abraham, and Isaac, and, his, and Jacob's wives, right? God-fearing women. Those women went to church. They taught Sunday school. They organized the potlucks. Those were the women he should have put in here. But instead, he picks four women from the family tree that 
that you weren't really supposed to be talking about. Like, for, question for you. If you were having to tell someone your family tree, are there any branches that you would leave off in the story? Yeah, one of you admit it. Thank you. But Matthew, you know, we all have that crazy uncle that lives like in a bunker or somewhere or something like that. You know, we all know. It's my wife's side. But instead, Matthew, Matthew includes some rand, rather scandalous women here. And he's doing it on purpose. He's not doing it on accident. Because Matthew was preaching the gospel through the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at these four women real quick. The first one he mentions is Tamar. Tamar is married to Judah's first, first son, right? And the Lord has, uh, says the Lord will come through the tribe of Judah. But Tamar, her husband, passed away before they had a child. And the bloodline was broken. And by law, the birthright was supposed to continue through the next son. So that brother was supposed to fulfill his duty and give her a child. But he refused to. He didn't fulfill his obligation and God killed him. And so Judah offers her her, his third son. But he says he's seven. So you're going to have to wait a long time before, until he's older, right? And so years go by, years go by, and Judah never sends his son. So one day, years later, Judah, his wife had passed away. And she heard that he was going into town. And so she dressed up like a shrine prostitute. She knew something a little bit, uh, something about Judah's appetite, right? So she dresses up and, and he notices her. And they hook up. But he forgot his wallet. It's so embarrassing, right? And so she tells him that this is what I need for, for you, from you for your security of the payment you owe me now. I need your ring and I need your staff. He gives it to her. And she disappears. Find out that she's pregnant now with Judah's twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Judah doesn't know. But he looks for her because he wants his ring and his staff back. And he, he looks and he can't find her. And so he, he decides just to forget about her. And then the rumors start going. And he hears of his, his daughter-in-law, Tamar, that she's with child. But she's not telling anybody who the, who the father is. So he knows that she must have been promiscuous. So Judah orders, orders her death. We got to hide this. Uh, we can't have this story in our family. This daughter-in-law of mine, a prostitute pregnant with some man's child. And so Tamar, in all of her wisdom, she sends the ring and the staff with a note and says, I am pregnant from the owner of these. And Judah realizes that it was his sin that caused this. And God wants to make sure that you and I understand that Tamar is a great, great grandmother of Jesus. And that this is a messy family tree. That there are branches going in every direction. And it's a family tree that preaches the grace of God. The second one is this Canaanite woman named Rahab. Now, Rahab comes to the story in the years of the Exodus having ended, right? And so Moses, you know, they're, they're there, they're on the outside of the promised land, and they send some spies into the promised land, right? You remember the story from the line of Judah? They go, they go into the promised land, and they want to make sure that this is the land that God had promised. And so they, they, they go in there to see what they're getting into, what's, what's going to be the opposition. 
And you remember they come back out, they're chased out. They're, they're, they're in fear of their life because there's some really big people in the promised land that they're, they're afraid of. And they, and they find refuge in this woman's house. This woman is a prostitute. She's a harlot. She runs this motel that charges by the hour kind of a thing. And while they're hiding there, she tells them this, this great confession of faith. She says to these guys, she says, listen, I know that your God is going to give you this land. I know that your God is the one who destroyed Egypt, who parted the Red Sea. I know that your God has promised you this land. And so when you come back to take it, please protect my family. And so these guys, they struck a deal with her because she, 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 she rescued them. She, she hid them from the army. And they say to her, well, here you go. Put this scarlet cord on, on your window. And then when we come back to take over this land, we'll see it in your window and we'll, and we'll, we'll leave your house alone. We won't, we won't destroy your family. And they ultimately take Rahab and her family out and they save her. But during this time, one of the guys that was there, one of the spies, uh, Salmon, he uh, uh, falls in love with Rahab, right? And together they have a son named Boaz. And Rahab finds her story in the genealogy of Jesus. It was scandalous. She wasn't supposed to be in there. This is not just about Jewish people and pure lineage anymore. This is a Canaanite woman with a messy past and a God of mercy. The next we hear about is Ruth. Ruth comes into the story as a Moabite. Uh, someone who was not supposed to get into the family line, right? She did not belong there. In fact, the scripture said it was against the law for an Israelite to marry a Moabite. And the whole story of Ruth is a story of God's redemption. Emiliac and his wife, Naomi, they're escaping the, fam- the famine that's going on in Bethlehem. And they move to a neighboring country called Moab with their sons, Milan and Chilion. Milan takes Ruth to be his wife. His brother marries another Moab woman. And Ruth is married now into a Hebrew family. But then her husband dies. And then his brother dies as well. And then his father dies. So now you have these three widows that are living together. And Naomi, who was the only Hebrew, she convinces Ruth to move back home with her to Bethlehem, back to their land. And when they're there, they're poor, they're widowed. There was a man named Boaz. You just heard about him. He has a crop of fields and he allows the poor to come and glean from the field. And Ruth, very poor, she's found gleaning in the fields. And Boaz begins to inquire about her. He becomes overwhelmingly attracted to her character, a woman who was taking care of her mother-in-law, a woman desperately in need of redemption. And so he keeps an eye on her and they fall in love. And Ruth goes home to tell Naomi about Boaz. And she's like, man, that, that name rings a bell. And she realizes that he is the kinsman of, kinsman of her husband. And by law, when a husband dies without issue, the nearest brother-in-law might be called upon to perform to her all the duties of a husband and raise up a seed for the deceased. And Boaz becomes this kinsman redeemer and redeems her to himself. And they have a son named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And she becomes a great, great grandmother of Jesus. When we get to the fourth woman listed in Jesus' family tree, 
Bathsheba doesn't even get her, her name mentioned, right? She's mentioned as Uriah's wife. If you remember, Uriah is, is the general of, uh, of David's mighty army. And when all the men are out fighting, David, he stayed home. One day, David, he's looking out his window and he, and he sees this woman on, on her, on her um, uh, roof bathing. And he says, man, I want her. I'm attracted to her. And he calls for her. And she comes to him and they conceive a child. Well, David realizes that she's married to one of his generals and he freaks out. He says, what am I going to do? How am I, I going to fix this now? And so he calls Uriah off the front line. He says, I have an idea. We'll just bring him home, right? And he'll be happy to be home. And he's been away for so long. Undoubtedly, he's going to want to sleep with his wife. Problem solved, right? You know, he'll, he'll think the child is his. Except for the fact that Uriah was more righteous than David. You see, he refused to go in and be with his wife because his men were still out fighting. And so he slept out of the gate of the city. And when David got word of this, he said, I'll fix that tonight. We're going to get him drunk because that usually works, right? right? And so he, he gets Uriah drunk. But Uriah still refuses to go home. And so David is left with one option. And he writes out Uriah's death sentence. And he gives it to him. He says, give this note to Joab. Because Joab was in charge of the army and where the army would go. And Joab is told to put Uriah on the front lines. And ultimately, Uriah is killed. Adultery and murder from the best king Israel ever had. The first line of the genealogy, Abraham's seed to King David. Four Gentile women and a bunch of men, most of them morally questionable. They're not the women or the men that you should be talking about in the bloodline. And Matthew preaches that this family tree is about God's mercy for all people. And believe it or not, these are the years when things were actually going right for God's people. This family turned into the nation that turned into the kingdom that God gave them the land, the temple. In the midst of that land, people uh, would, would worship on their lips. People with God's mercy and God's promises creating God's family. And then things go downhill. From Solomon to the exile, Matthew teaches us that God, as well as being merciful and forgiving, is a holy God. And he is a God of judgment over wickedness. And as in any family, when God is forgotten, things don't go well. Kings guilty of great evil. Idolatry all over the house of Israel now. And God's judgment brings them into exile. And this is the place where all the promises that used to be seen fade away. Babylon comes in and, they, and, and takes them away. They take them out of the land Destroys the temple, removes them from the heart of worship. And the hope is gone for the people of God. And this story, this family tree begs the question, how can anything good come from this bunch of people? How can God possibly bring hope into the world through these people? Some of you look at your families and you, you ask the same question. You see the judgment of God. You see the holiness of God. But you see what happens when God is forgotten and when he's rejected. And you ask yourself, how can anything good come from a bunch of people like this? 
when we move from the exile to now to, to Christ, we recognize that Matthew is teaching us that this God who is faithful to his promises, that his promises aren't dependent upon us, which is good news for every family tree that ever existed. Judgment is never the last word with God. It's never supposed to be the last word. Judgment is there to wake us up, uh, wake us up from our unbelief. Just when everything, when everyone thought that everything had fallen apart, God starts putting it back together again. God is faithful to his promises and he promised a savior all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham. He promises a savior and he delivers one. Through this family tree, we learn that God's love is merciful and holy and faithful. When we look at this genealogy, we get insight into how Matthew read the Old Testament. The way he understood all of these stories in Genesis and Exodus through Kings and Chronicles. Matthew read the Old Testament through the lens of a coming Christ. For Matthew, all of God's loving mercy, holy judgment, faithful love was pointing to the child of the fifth woman mentioned in the genealogy, Mary. That Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was trying to say. That Jesus is God's faithfulness in the flesh, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the womb of Mary. Now as we look at Matthew's genealogy and we look at our own Lineage, we recognize that there isn't any family that isn't desperately in need of a God, right? A God who is merciful to sinners, forgiving, gracious, holy, faithful. We need a God. We need a Savior like Jesus. Because if we depend on ourselves, then we know how this thing's going to go. There's no family, though, that's gone too far. For some of you, you might be thinking that's impossible. You don't, know my, you don't know my family tree, man. If you did, you know that nothing would come good from it. The truth is, it's not nearly wrought with sin like it was in Jesus' family tree. With God, all things were possible. There's only these ordinary sinful families, just like the one Jesus came from, whose great-great-grandmother and grandfather were adulterers, Liars, murderers, worshipers of idols, and the founding fathers of our faith. Because of what God did through Jesus, you no longer are defined by your past. That through broken bloodlines and messy families, the gospel message is proclaimed. That if you hide your past, if Matthew were to leave out some of these names... And the glory goes to all the great people in the lineage, right? These are great men and women of God. This is the bloodline of Jesus. But when he leaves the names in, the glory goes to a gracious and merciful God. Jesus, the Messiah, came for those who were broken and he came through broken people. When we choose to put our trust in Jesus, our faith is our new identity, not our past. We don't forget where we we came from. We're no longer defined by it. So when we look at the genealogy from the other side of the cross, 
Our response would probably be this Jesus kid. Man, he doesn't have a chance. There's no way he's the Messiah. Look at the men in his family. They're screw-ups. Look at the women in his family. But from this side of the cross, we see it differently. We have the truth that your past will not stop what God has done. And it doesn't change what the cross and the resurrection already did. And that's good news that we're proclaiming. We don't hide our brokenness. Often we're told to view your life, view our life as a vase. This idea that God is pouring into you and from that overflow People will see God and and you'll be able to to be used by God. But some of you, you identify with that vase and you go, I'm so broken. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Because everything he pours in just seems to leak out because of these cracks, these these brokenness. But what if you were to turn that vase upside down and you looked at yourself more as a lamp? And when God's light, when the light of Christ enters into you, it shines through the brokenness and through the cracks. If you're going to look back, we're going to look back at our past. We have to look all the way back to the cross. You're not defined by your past. But the birth, death, resurrection means hope has been found. And this is the gospel of Matthew. It's told by a tax collector. Join me in prayer. God, as you move in this place, speak to our hearts. As we look back at our lives, our past, our our brokenness, may we look even further to what you did on that cross when you freely gave your life for the forgiveness of our sins. That if we trust in you and put our hope in you, that you reconcile us, that we're no longer defined by our past, but defined by you and the new creation that you've created. God, speak through us now as we proclaim this message of hope. A God that came for broken people through broken people uses broken people to proclaim this message. Speak through us. And then we pray. Amen.